Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Welcome back. I'm Ken Baer, pastor at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue, a non-denominational church here in Celebration, Florida. We're in a sermon series called Unstoppable. It's based on the Acts of the Apostles. So we've been traveling through the Acts of the Apostles. We're now in chapter 23. Puts us about halfway through the Acts of the Apostles. Um, a little bit of background, as you may recall, the Apostle Paul had returned to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And when he arrived there at the fe on the Feast of Pentecost, the elders in the church welcomed him um, open, with, with open arms. They were happy to have Paul back. But then he found out that, that uh, both the believing Jews as well as the non-believing Jews, by believing Jews we mean those Jews that accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as well as the non-believing Jews, those that had not, both of them had a problem with Paul. And the problem was, is that it had been, it had been uh, spoken of Paul uh, that he encouraged the uh, Jewish families not to circumcise their sons, uh, that he spoke against Moses as well as the temple. And, and that got him into a lot of trouble. They tried to kill him a couple times, and we find last week that uh, he, went, he came before the uh, Sanhedrin, and the high priest Ananias had, him, had Paul struck in the mouth. Uh, this was an unusual way for a high priest to act, but we found out also historically that Ananias was known to be a horrible high priest. He was evil, greedy, and he was ultimately killed by some Jewish nationals just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, after Paul was struck on the mouth, he called the high priest a whitewashed wall. And Paul needed to, to change his tactics. He realized he was not going to get anywhere uh, with the Sanhedrin. So uh, what he decided to do was he reminded them that he was a, a Pharisee. And he was being persecuted because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Now the Sanhedrin in included both Pharisees as well as Sadducees. And there's a huge difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not only in their belief of the resurrection of the dead, but a number of different things. So a dispute broke out uh, among the accusers of Paul. And uh, it actually worked for Paul because what happened is the, this, dis this dispute uh, brought them almost to blows and the Roman commander had to rescue Paul again. So we ended our discussion last week uh, talking about the encouragement that Paul received from the Lord when he was taken back to the Roman garrison barracks, uh, basically a jail cell. Uh, the Lord had come to Paul and told him to take courage. And then the Lord told him something that was going to sustain Paul for li literally the rest of his earthly ministry. And that was that Paul would testify of these things as he had in Jerusalem in Rome. So today we're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 23. Uh, the title for my message today is The Jewish Conspiracy. The Jewish Conspiracy. And we'll begin in verse 12. The next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in the plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath 
not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. You know, so, so 40 men have a conspiracy. They take an oath, which is a vow, and the plot is to kill the Apostle Paul. And they say they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. You would think that all of these Jews, this is the third time that Paul's had a death threat in the last two or three days. Um, you would think that all of these conspiracies, all of these Jews trying to kill Paul, would actually sour him on ministering to his Jewish brothers and sisters, his affection for his own people. But Paul, was con Paul continued to love the Jewish people and speak specifically uh, to this zeal in, uh, that these men had in Romans chapter 10. By the way, Romans chapter 10 is a wonderful uh, chapter that speaks specifically about the future of the Jewish people. Paul says this, he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now, these men may have had a lot of zeal, but it wasn't based on knowledge. Uh, they were very misguided. Zeal and devotion by itself uh, proves nothing about an individual's individual relationship uh, with God. Their zeal may be admirable, but they were doing exactly what God hates. Now, I know that's strong language, but that's exactly what uh, the book of Proverbs says about the things that the Lord hates. Let me read it to you. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shred innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. You know, that's, that's quite a list. And actually, if you have it, like I have it, you can just check these off um, as, the, as Proverbs continues. Uh, number one, lying. Yep. Number two, the hands that shed innocent blood. Yep. Number three, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Well, this is exactly what these 40 men are doing. Check. Number four, a feet that are quick to rush into evil. And number five, a false witness that pours out lies. Check and check. These are things that are detestable to the Lord. Our scripture says that these men would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Uh, this is an oath or a vow. Now, do you think that because we're going to find out that they're ultimately not successful, do you think that they all died from starvation? Do you think that they all died from thirst? Well, of course not. These vows are, are, are ridiculous, and that's exactly why, um, well, that's actually one of the reasons why the Lord detests them. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about vows. In fact, do you remember the let your yes be yes and your no be no? That's out of Matthew 5. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it be said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the Lord the vows you have made. But Jesus continues, he says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for that's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need is to simply say yes. 
or no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So we know exactly where this vow, this conspiracy is coming from. This is a, this is a devilish plot. Now, unfortunately, this was not just the direction that these Jews took that, wanted to, that they wanted to kill Paul. If you remember, in verse 14, it says they went to the chief priests. So it wasn't just the 40, it was the chief priests that were in on this as well. They said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat or anything until we've killed Paul. So these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were complicit in this conspiracy. Um, it's also been said that the direction that is, uh, is, is because of misguided individuals. Now, leaders in the church have done this as well. Verse 15, it says, Suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries um, regarding him. So they're asking the Pharisees to join into their plot and go to the commander and ask again to inquire regarding Paul. Not, they're lying to the commander. Again, this is, this is what happens when you take oaths, when you have this zeal, as Paul said, without question. So, I have a couple questions for you. Do you like Jeopardy? Do you like answering history questions? It's an easy question. Maybe not. Uh, if I asked you what happened in 1492, you would probably say, well, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? Well, you would be correct. Columbus definitely sailed the ocean in 1492. However, there are two other very historically significant events that happened in 1492, and it ties, it ties directly in with what we're talking about today. Uh, number two, the Moors, or the Muslims, were finally driven out of Spain. Uh, um, this period in Spain from the 8th century, actually 9th century, until the 15th century was a time under Moorish rule. Uh, the Muslims had come into Spain and basically had conquered all of the Iberian Peninsula. And it took hundreds of years for the Spanish Christians to rid themselves of the Moors. It was called the Reconquista. Um, and the third thing, here's the third thing, the Inquisition that had started a few hundred years earlier ramped up into full speed because after the Moors were gone and after they had their land, the, um, the, the king and queen, that was King Ferdinand and Isabella, they were called those, those, uh, those Reyes Catolicos, the, the kings, the Catholic kings, both Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, turned their attention to the Jews. And this was part of the Inquisition. They, they ramped up their persecution of the Jews. And the Jews, there was a significant amount of Jewish people uh, living on the Iberian Peninsula, well over a million. And they were all vanquished. They were all told to, to leave the peninsula. Now, the Inquisition that we're mentioning was a church-sanctioned attempt to unify and to purify Christianity. It was a time of horrible, horrible injustice, religious bigotry, persecution, and confiscation. It began in the 12th century under Pope Innocent. What a name, huh? What a name for, for a pope that, that begins the Inquisition. He said this, anyone who attempts to construe a personal view of God which conflicts with the church dogma must be burned without pity. 
So here in 1492, after the, uh, the Spaniards get rid of the Moors, the Muslims, they turn their attention to the, to the Jews, but it's not going to stop there. You know, it wasn't, not, it wasn't just the Jews. Anyone that the religious or the civil leaders felt were doing something contrary to what the current powers, the powers in office, felt was appropriate or expedient uh, could be targeted. It was one of the most egregious exercises of brute force against divergent Christian populations. Um, it kind of culminated um, in the 16th century with the persecution of the Waldesians. These were, pe these were followers of a man named Peter Waldo. Uh, in essence, they were, they were reformers. But about 60, 70 years before Martin Luther, uh, there was a large movement in France a group of people that were, that were very religious people that wanted to study the Bible, that wanted to live a life that was simple, and the church would just not tolerate it. Now, over the years, the Catholic Church has repeatedly acknowledged the error of these inquisitions. Um, and in 2017, on the 500th anniversary of the, of the Protestant Reformation, Pope Francis apologized in a Waldesian church in Turin. So let's continue. Let's return to the scripture for today, uh, uh, verse 16. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of his centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand drew him aside and asked, what is it that you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So, so we see here in this, in this passage that this is, this is Paul's nephew. And Paul's nephew hears of this plot and warns, the, warns Paul, first of all, and then the Roman commander. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that we find out that Paul had a sister, and this sister had a young son. It's a touching story because it speaks to us of the providence of God. Notice that initially Paul knew nothing of this. He was told by his nephew. However, it's his nephew that hears of the plot. Now, do you think that it just was coincidence that the one person that heard of this plot happened to be the son of Paul's sister? Well, I don't think anything happens by accident or coincidentally. My friends, there is no coincidence when it comes to the direct intervention and providence of God. God is going to ensure that Paul continues his mission, that God wants him to continue. And, and nothing is going to happen to Paul uh, until God says that it's time. Now, that should give us all some, some confidence today. You know, we live in a very different time today, especially here in the, in the Western world. We live in relative, and I say relative, safety and, and security. However, our hearts can sometimes be, be troubled. We are also still prone to worry. 
even when the scriptures tell us not to. You know, Philippians uh, chapter 6, uh, chapter 4 says this, and these are words of Paul. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's nephew went to Paul and told him of the conspiracy, the plot to kill Paul. Paul called to one of the centurions who brought the young boy to the commander. Now, we believe that this is a young boy, and the reason is, is because in verse 9 it says that the commander took the boy by the hand, drew him aside and said, what is it that you want to tell me? If he took him by the hand, this indicates it's a young boy. You would not do that to an adult man. So Paul's nephew tells the commander of the conspiracy, the plot. Forty men, they take the vow, the pretext of bringing Paul before the Sanhedrin, and then killing him before he even gets there. The commander dismisses Paul's nephew and says something very interesting. Verse 22, the commander says, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Now, why the secrecy? As you're reading this, it's like, well, why, is it, why does this have to be a secret? Well, that's a good question, but if we continue, you'll see exactly why. Verse 23, and he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to, to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their consul. I found out that he was, an he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. But when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for this man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Verse 31. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So we finish this chapter today with this most unusual response by the Roman commander and the extreme effort that was taken to ensure Paul's safety and also provide Paul's proper defense before Felix. So Paul escapes from Jerusalem to Caesarea with a full military escort and a letter referring his case to the provincial governor, Felix. I said extreme effort to protect Paul. Notice the commander called for two centurions, saying prepare 200 soldiers, 100 soldiers per centurion, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea. And a at the third hour of night, that's nine o'clock at night, and provide mounts to set Paul on, that's horses, and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. 
This is an extreme effort. 470 Roman soldiers accompany Paul to Caesarea to ensure that he is safely delivered to Felix, the governor. Now, in the letter to Governor Felix, the commander says, I rescued him having learned that he was a Roman. In his letter, Claudius implies that he learned of Paul's Roman citizenship maybe right away. He doesn't mention at all that he was about to have Paul flogged or almost scourged at the time of interrogation. However, this commander is a most honorable man. In fact, he receives a great tribute from the Lord. His name is in the Bible. Verse 26, it says his name is Claudius Lysias. So what do we learn from these things? Well, I think there's four things we learn from this passage today. Number one, there is no substance in this charge of subversion brought not only against Paul, but against Christians in general. Over the past 2,000 years, there have been many believers that have been unjustly accused. Number two, the religious zealots can often run roughshod over their own religious laws. They can and will lie, cheat, steal, injure, persecute, kill, and they justify all of this, uh, all of their own actions because of their misguided allegiance to their religion, to their principle, or to an individual person. Number three, that God protects and provides for his people. God is not indifferent to our sufferings, the persecutions we go through, or the hardships. God is still on the throne, and all things do work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. And finally, number four, that often God will use the non-believer, uh, the pagan, sometimes even those that are evil, to bless and to provide for his people. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astonished, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though I were to tell you. That's Habakkuk chapter 1. Now I'm sure Paul was astonished at exactly how he escaped from Jerusalem and ended up in Caesarea. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be able to pray, to be able to believe. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.